I think as a girl with ADHD, it, it turns up like, you know, a lot of talking in class, but then they're like, oh, it's just girls talk a lot, you know, but um, not always <laughs> and not as much. And usually they can stop when they're told, you know, stop. So and it's been interesting, like seeing the community and how many women there actually are who struggle with this sort of thing. ADHD Rewired episode 310. This is the podcast for those of us with really good intentions and a slightly wandering attention. I'm Eric Tivers. I'm a licensed clinical social worker by training and a coach by design. I'm your host and I have ADHD. ADHD Rewired is more than just a podcast. We are a community. We are wired for connection and you are not alone. Go to ADHDrewired.com to learn how you can join us in our free secret Facebook group. Get additional resources for every episode, including links to any resources we we mentioned on today's show. You can support us on Patreon, sign up for our email newsletter, you can request podcast postcards to distribute to your clients and support groups, and you can learn all about our intensive online video-based coaching and accountability groups. You can do all of this at our website, ADHDrewired.com. We know that starting is the hardest part, so let's get started. Welcome back to another episode of ADHD Rewired. I'm really excited for today's guest because uh, today's guest is actually sitting next to me in the ADHD Rewired Studios, not on Zoom. It's nice to be able to see someone who's not like two inches big because that's the size of the screen. And uh, it's Mirage Gain. Mirage, welcome. Welcome to Glenview. Thanks. Thanks. So Mirage is a um, a psychology, I'm going off a non-bio bio, so uh, psychology, clinical psychology PhD student. PhD student. Yep. Um, she's uh, brilliant because she's now in her eighth year of her PhD. Yeah. And um, she uh, is studying some really cool stuff that we're going to talk about related to uh, attention and executive control and decision making. Um, and it's a member of uh, one of our coaching groups. What's, what season was it? 17.1. 17.1. All right. Um, so, uh, let's, let's dive right in. What, so where, where, where are you in school? Um, give us just a little bit more of that. Info. Yeah. So I go to school at Virginia Tech, um, but I'm not there currently. Uh, so I finished my coursework. I did a lot of clinical work when I was there, um, just training wise. And then now I'm doing my dissertation research as a fellow at the National Institute of Mental Health. That sounds very fancy and professional. Does right? <laughs> Words are cool. <laughs> and all right, so let's let's first dive in a little bit to your story, and then I want to dive into your research because it's I think it's really fascinating. Cool. Because um, if you're anything like me and you get overwhelmed just making like small decisions, sometimes like her research is re- looking at at that uh, in some really neat ways. So you were almost diagnosed in high school. Yep, almost. But. Uh- I forgot to turn in the paperwork, so uh, I was not diagnosed. And so you then you went to college. Mm-hmm. How was college for you? College was all right. Um, I took on a lot, I think, and I was a double major, psychology and English writing. Um, it was it was helpful to be in a liberal arts school. I'll say that because the class sizes were small. It was a lot more personal. Your interactions were way more personal. 
Um, so people sort of had eye out for you, you know, and, and you maximize that ADHD like socialness sometimes. Um, but yeah, it definitely took on a lot. Like my junior year, I did like 26 credit hours. What? It was not a good idea. That's an entire year for, oh my in gosh. In a semester. I was trying, I don't know why I had gotten it in my head. Like, I want to graduate in two and a half years. It's just, yeah, I don't know. It, it was part of that like overestimation, under delivering. <laughs> so when you were in high school, you were in like AP classes and. Yeah, um, I had some AP classes, some normal classes. I sort of, um, yeah, it, it was it was good because AP classes were stimulating. And I think that's like the big thing that I always needed. It was like I needed the challenge to sort of get through what, I, you know, school. And so intelligence got you to a so far. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you were in grad school. Yep. Yeah. So I, I actually applied for PhD program straight out of undergrad. Um, but I had no idea what I was doing. Like this was the first time I'd ever done something like this. And I hadn't didn't have a whole lot of research experience. I had some, um, but I didn't have a lot and I had no idea how the process worked at all. Um, so I didn't get into any PhD programs first round. Um, I took a year off, did some more research, um, got married, traveled a bit, lived overseas for six months, did more research there. And then where did you, you live? Um, I actually lived in Iran for six months. And that's where your, your family. Yeah. So my family's from there. So I was, I was sort of visiting family for, for a while. It was like a year after college trying to distract myself and study for the GRE and stuff. Um, so I did that and it, it was actually a really nice experience because I got to do research in a completely different setting um, with, you know, it was like cross-cultural research, looking at memory of the self and how that differs between sort of collectivist versus individualistic mm-hmm. cultures. Um, so it was, it was cool. It was a really cool experience. I'm glad I did it. And then I applied for PhD programs again. Um, and this time I also applied for master's programs. Um, didn't get into any PhD programs again happens. Uh, and, but I did get into a really great master's program at San Diego State University. Um, and it's just like a regular psychology. It wasn't like clinical or anything. Uh, but I learned a lot in terms of neuroscience and, and just stats and research and um, being in a larger university setting was really helpful. Um, and then the third time I applied to PhD programs, I got in. I, you know, I got into everywhere I interviewed. So was it hard for you to keep applying? For sure. It was hard, but I think there's, there's this aspect of like, um, stubbornness that sort of comes with, uh, who I am that it's like, if I want something, I'm going to get it. It's going to be hard. It's going to take longer, all of that. But I think I've come to sort of accept that, that's okay as long as I still get it. Would you say that you've always had a kind of resilient spirit? Yeah, for sure. Um, I think it's hard work is part of, you know, having things be challenging and, uh, and being able to look like problem solve and look for different ways to sort of tackle things is like, it's kind of fun. So um, while it is hard and it really sucks in the moment, uh, 
you know, it's, it's good to pick myself back up and try again. So how far along were you in your, your master's program um, in, in grad school when you started the diagnosis? Um, I actually, it wasn't even in my master's program. It was in my PhD program. Okay, PhD. And it was probably in my third year in my PhD program. And what was going on then? Um, it was just a lot of stuff. Uh, I think, you know, you're responsible for treating patients. You're responsible for writing progress notes, which were the worst. (laughs) Yeah. But um, But give me a crisis any day. Make me write the report about it. It's it's so hard. It's so hard. It's so hard. But it, it, I think having the diagnosis allowed me to try to think about what it was that I was doing that was also making it even harder, you know, like being a perfectionist about it. Like, do I really need Mm. to include every single detail of a conversation we had in a progress note? Probably not. Like the gist of it would be totally fine uh, for liability (laughs) reasons. Those like process notes. Right. It's like, I don't have to be like, I said this and then she said this and, you know, um, and I think realizing that, well, looking at my own notes and like looking at somebody who didn't have ADHD who was like in my class, I'm like, oh, that, that's all I need to, to do? <laughs> like, you know, so uh, it was helpful and eye-opening in that way. Um, and of course, figuring out how I could set up my environment so that I'd perform better, you know, more efficiently. Um, I ended up finding a closet in my lab space because uh, our graduate students, most of us shared, like there was like a shared lab space and people talked all the time. Uh, that's you hard. Know? And that's part of grad school. Like you need to vent about everything that's going on and you need to, you know, talk about research stuff. And, but um, yeah, I found a closet that had no outlets that I needed to basically like put an extension cord through the hallways <laughs> And a silence, please sign on the door. In the closet. In the closet. Yep. But it worked. You know, it was a small space and. Wait, was it a big closet? No, it was a small, it was a small <laughs> closet. And and the reason it was a small closet, because I have, there's this um, concept of like effective field of view that they talk about okay. in um, visual neuroscience sometimes or attention research. Um and it's basically like, you know, we have our field of view is like what you can see mm-hmm. given where you are. Um, but effective field of view is like sort of how much like attention space, like how much you're aware of, you know. Um, and I think the smaller the space I was in, the less space felt like existed in my brain. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that that worked for me. I always say, you know, when it comes to, to reducing distractions in, in our environment, it's simple math decrease the number of things that you could see. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Decrease the number of things you see and, and like, like the walls sort of help, you know, it's like, it's, it confines my brain space. It was like uh those, those science fair, like a trifold, trifold boards. Yep. Yeah. Yep. yep. Like a cubicle basically. Yeah. It's, you know, when I, we, we were uh, uh, sitting at the other spot of my office and I was pointing out the number of squirrels that just like grab my attention outside my window. Yep. That it's like a bad meme. Yeah. Right. That it's, uh, but yeah, it's like my brain can't filter that. Yep. But Especially if it's moving. Yeah. Yes. It's anything that's moving. It's, I mean, it is amazing. What can distract me? Yeah, totally. I agree. You also mentioned children that sometimes pop up outside <laughs> your window. <laughs> so I so I have, so I have a corner office and I have four four windows and um 
my my desk is like a, an L, and and so one of my uh, one of the windows is very close to like where I'm sitting at my desk, and apparently right outside my window is this really good hide and seek spot for kids because it's like a playground kind of near where, where I'm at. And I was telling Mirage that when when that happens, they don't even realize like they're right outside somebody's window, and I'll just kind of like peek my head really close to the window with like a smile, and she's just like, "That's so creepy." Uh, <laughs> like some like. Big Big grin out. It's like Cheshire Cat, you know, staring at you outside the window. I'm just more of like an eager anticipation of like, I know they're going to be startled. And it's sort of like I'm, I'm sort of playing the game that they didn't know that I was included in. But like, hey, you're in my space now. We are now playing. <laughs> <laughs> and then if I creep them out, then they don't come back. Then I can get back to work. You're like a myth in the, in the community, probably. It's like... The smiling man. It's the guy that does that ADHD thing. It's, it's a weirdo. <laughs> All right. So you were diagnosed. Um, like, were you really struggling at that point? I was. Um, I think I was getting a lot of feedback about, you know, Mirage is really good at a lot of things and she has a lot of potential. And, um, but there, you know, as soon as she fixes, like, improves her development in one area like another area sort of falls a little bit yeah. off the wagon a little bit and and I was like why why is this so hard like it's just not as hard for everyone else um so and I was just tired of hearing that whole like you have so much potential but not quite you know and that that was like my my parent teacher conference feedback since birth yeah you know yeah, it's me. And I look back at my old school reports. It's, it's all in there. Like it's it's you know smart, but doesn't really apply themselves. Smart by himself uh, um, is easily distracted. Is messy. Is uh, disorganized. Forgets to turn in his homework. Uh, it's like it's why it wasn't you know because I wasn't hyperactive. So for me, yeah. it wasn't you know it wasn't caught. Well, and I think as a girl with with ADHD, it it turns up like you know a lot of talking in class, but then they're like, oh, it's just girls talk a lot, right, you know, Right. but um, not always <laughs> and not as much. And usually they can stop when they're told, you know, stop. So I think um, it's, it's tough and it's been interesting, like seeing the community and how many women there actually are yeah. who struggle with this sort of thing. So let me ask you, you told me that you, uh, you're first generation um, in, in the U.S., mm-hmm. families from, from Iran. Mm-hmm. How, I mean, is there, we know that there's a lot of minority communities, there's a lot of stigma around all things related to mental health. Totally. I think the cultural stuff comes in um, a good bit. I think it also is a place of uh, how expectations, how family expectations and values can shape sort of our perceptions of ourselves. Um, and so if, I don't know, so, say you're in a culture where it's valued that women um, behave a certain way or or that, um, you know, you attain a certain level of achievement. Um, I know we dealt with this a lot in our group, in our art group, um, like the high expectations for achievement. You you build those skills, but if you fall slightly short, it, it becomes a hard thing to deal with like you start being like oh well now 
this is going to reflect on my family's reputation. This is going to, you know, mm. it becomes like a, a more collectivist issue rather than just a you thing. Um, and so you start feeling responsible for like lot, lots of things. So um, did you tell your parents right away when you were diagnosed? Oh, yeah. So my mom, I think, always sort of knew and she she's the one who had pushed for it in high school also, mm. um, which was really helpful. I think my dad didn't quite have as much. Um, it's just stuff that it's not even cultural. I think generationally um, that my parents' generation weren't really aware of these sorts of things. And if they were, may have approached life differently. Um now they're totally open and, and, you know, talk about it all the time. And my mom thinks, she, you know, sometimes she has it, you know, whatever, <laughs> but, um, or like, yeah, so, I, but I value it. I think it, it gives me uniqueness. It gives um, the people in my family, like my parents, aspects of them that are just unique. My dad was really sport, you know, sports oriented. And I, so there are valuable things that came out of it. It did bring us closer, I think, in some ways eventually. Um, once you sort of have an answer, you can say, oh, this makes sense why mm. it was so hard for her. And so they were really accepting. and Yeah, and I know that not everyone is that privileged. Um, but it's an ongoing dialogue still, you know. You have siblings? I do. Yeah, I have two. I have a... Uh, a uh, brother who's six years younger than me and a sister who's eight years younger than me. So the oldest. Yeah. So yeah. You, were the, you were the practice kid. I, <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes, but yeah. Yeah, and, and that's the other thing is like being immigrants. So I, I was born here, but my f parents were immigrants. And that's also a level of parenting difficulty that gets added on. You don't have your parents to help you raise children like there are no grandparents sort of in the picture um you end up going towards communities out of uh sort of like lack of options you know you hang out with people who are around you mm -hmm. because that's who you're comfortable with and there's a lot of mistrust you know mm. uh, towards um towards people who may not be like you and and things, and I think it takes time for that to to get over sometimes. Um, and so I I was the firstborn, but also in like a very sensitive time period. Mm. I think so. That's it's it's important. I think that those sorts of the stigma and things can come from more than just, even within the U.S. I know I worked like being in Virginia Tech. I worked with a lot of um, people in the Appalachian region and and families who are Southern. Um, from Southern communities. And that was really eye-opening to me just to experience the difference in culture. Um, what, what was it about it that was eye-opening? Well, I think, so I, I had, you know, t the okayness of talking about feelings, for example, like how culturally acceptable it is to mm -hmm. even say like emotional things, you know, gender stereotypes, like how males are supposed to be rough and tough. And, and of course, this isn't the case broadly across every person in, in these communities, but tends to be like the um, primary perspective. So how do you approach that? You know, how do you encourage someone to be vulnerable when vulnerability is not okay? And how do you? Uh, 
with great difficulty. No, um, I think it's just meeting people where they're at mm. uh, is probably the best advice that I have. It's because you can't you can't force someone who says like I don't think psychological things are real or I don't think emotions should be talked about or I don't. This is just silly stuff. So that's stuff that you have to deal with. Yeah, yeah, and um, you sort of have to say like, okay, so let's talk about this from a medical perspective. Let's talk about this from a neuroscientific perspective. And that's one reason I really like having both sides. Like I have the psychological training, but I also have this neuroscience um, background that helps me be able to explain how something that looks like it's just. So you were looking for more certainty in your data, which is what your research is actually kind of about. Yeah. Yeah. I um, research how we make decisions under uncertainty and not just uncertainty about like what's going to happen. So that's one part of it. Um, So uncertainty about outcomes, but also uncertainty about what we see and what we perceive. So how do we know what to attend to, what something is, and how do we decide, um, you know, what the outcomes of those actions or, or choices are going to be. Uh, and then combine those to like figure out what to choose or what to do. Well, what we're going to do is we are going to uh, take a quick break. And then when we come back, we're going to, uh, we're going to dive into your research because it's fascinating. Thanks. All right. We will be right back. One of the most rewarding things for me as a coach is getting to witness people finding the courage to do the things that they were too afraid to do for so many years. Members who join ADHD Rewired's coaching and accountability groups learn more than time awareness and planning skills. They discover what really matters. And sometimes what really matters is not on your to-do list. I want you to meet Phil. He joined our coaching groups in the fall of 2019. He's an artist who has been working as an architect for the last 10 years, feeling stuck and afraid because of his ADHD. Before this group, I really didn't think that I had a way out of the nine to five job that I do. And I actually realized that for so, so many years, I've done a job that was safe because I just couldn't risk taking risks because my ADHD was just too unknown. I just couldn't take a risk. And now I have actually started to take risks and I've spoken in a way that put my voice forward and God damn it, I had a meeting on Thursday and it was with seven very angry union men. I asked to come to the meeting and I'd been pushed out because they didn't want the architect in the room advising or stuffing it up. And by the end of that meeting, those five guys were all crowded around me asking about the design and one of them stood up and said, this is what we've wanted the entire three months of this negotiation, to be able to talk to someone. And, and three weeks before I had my manager, my director in the room, I've been asking for help to get in that room. This process, you need to help me. You're not doing enough. You really have to help me do this. And that was because of this group that I spoke up. And then the director of that area sent an email going, that was just a great meeting. We came together. Thank you. It was like, circulate that to all my directors and show them. I honestly can't believe it. That session for me 
was 40 minutes in a year of pain and 10 years of pain in this job. No one in the room could actually give them what they wanted. It was fighting and arguing and they were terrified. Everyone was terrified of these union guys. And I'm not saying I'm magical or anything, but it's because I spoke up and I got into that room and I still want to leave this job. But it's like I'm unknowing has happened that's always been there, but I haven't been able to edit out because I was so frightened. That's just like some huge great moment that happened this week. It's like, it was so cool. It was magical. I still want out of the job, but Jesus, it's so much better day to day. With ADHD Rewired's intensive online video-based coaching and accountability groups, you're going to have the support and accountability to take the skills and insights you learn and actually take action on them. You're already trying hard. Maybe it's time to try something different. Go to coachingrewired.com and sign up to get invited to our final registration event for ADHD Rewired's 20th season of coaching and accountability groups. Spring sessions begin April 8th. We are already filling up to see how many spots are still available in each section and to see session dates, times, and other details. Go to coachingrewired.com. Start your journey with our 10-week intensive coaching group. You can keep your growth going with weekly sessions with our members of our alumni program, which you will get to try for free when you join our coaching and accountability groups. This is more than ADHD coaching. This is ADHD Rewired Coaching. Come experience the true power of supportive accountability for members of your own tribe. Join us for our last registration event. It's on March 5th. Registration is by invitation only. To get your invitation, go to coachingrewired.com and click on the big green button. Space is limited for our registration events. Don't wait because we will fill up. The website again is coachingrewired.com. That's coachingrewired.com. All right, we are back. So, Marsh, where do you want to start with your research? Kind of, because I know that you just presented recently a paper. Um, what was your topic? It's super nerdy and cool sounding. Yeah. Um, so, is I presented a poster at um, Society for Neuroscience, uh, which is a gigantic and very overwhelming, but also super fun. Uh, conference. Um, so my topic was on how uh, we make decisions under perceptual and reward uncertainty. Um, so uncertainty about how much something, you know, what the value of something might be or uncertainty about what something is. Um, so yeah, so I just presented on that. That's just like from pilot data from my dissertation. So moving along on that large project. How many people did you have in your study? Um, I had this, so this was just behavioral data. I had about 10 okay. subjects in this, this one. Um, and now I'm collecting data in the MRI with, uh, functional imaging, uh, with the same task. So. And what are you looking for? Um, several things. So one is how, how are people actually doing this? You know, what do they trade off? Do they combine perceptual reward information that they have? Um, do they primarily bias their choices using one or the other? And also, are there sort of individual differences in how we use perceptual and reward information, how we integrate Let's, let's break that down. So perceptual yeah. reward right. information. All right. So perceptual, yeah. the information we're rece- receiving from our environment. Yep. Like what we see um, or, yeah, what we know about our environment. Yep. Okay. And then... 
reward. And then the reward information is sort of what we know about the outcomes of our actions or of the stimuli in our environment. So um, let's say you're approaching someone and you're not quite sure, are they angry or are they just focused, right? Um, Well, whether they're angry or focused is going to alter how they react towards you if you, in fact, interrupt them. Um, And so you have to decide, am I going to assume this person's focus? Well, I could be focused and then get interrupted and now I'm going to be angry. Now you're going to be angry. Yeah, yeah, totally, totally. So so also like your your prior knowledge about what that person is like, you know, Mm. are they going to be reactive or are they just going to be calm and, you know, whatever. So... Um, so that's that's kind of the question. Is, is so you're kind of looking at reward as a knowable outcome. As a knowable outcome, yeah. So I don't have any learning in my task. Um, people don't have to figure out what the options are worth. I sort of tell them up front, like if you pick option A, you know, you have 80% chance of getting a high reward. Which, so what, like set up the scenario for us. Okay. Um, so the scenario is there's sort of four pictures on the screen, like in quadrants. And you're told that two of the pictures are always cars and cars are worth nothing. Um, And they're always difficult to see. Okay. They're hard to see. They're sort of meant to be distractors. Okay. Okay. And then you have um, a face and a house. And faces and houses are commonly used in neuroscience tasks, partly because we have a pretty good idea of what regions of the brain they should activate. And so it's sort of a sanity check. When you're trying to be like, is my task actually doing what it's supposed to be doing? Um, so, so faces and houses are targets and they're worth something. How much they're worth depends on the condition you're in. So sometimes faces are worth, um, anytime you choose a face, it'll give you eight cents. That's hundred percent of the time. It'll give you eight cents and that's a high reward amount. Low reward amount is two cents. And so, um, when faces highly rewarding houses so not what, very so, so what is the participant choosing like what's the so they're just picking a stimuli out of the just, in the four quadrants like. yeah whatever whatever they feel like will give them the most reward so the caveat here is that the clarity of the face and house change as you move through the trials and in one of the tasks so um what they're not both clear and easy to see, okay. right? So you know the cars are worth nothing, mm-hmm. and then you're just, what do you think will give you the most reward? Based on that, what you know. Okay. Right? Okay. Yeah, so you're told the probability of reward for picking each one, and you're told that they might change in clarity. So now the question is, are you going to choose the one that's clearest? Because you're guaranteed to get whatever outcomes associated with that? Or are you going to try to find the one that's really, that you know is more rewarding um, and risk potentially choosing a car Mm. in the case when that stimulus is harder to see? So these are all either blurry, they're they're blurry to some degree. Mm -hmm. And you're kind of thinking, I think that's a car, I think that's a house. Right, right. You sort of have to like, and and it's really fast. You only have 1.5 seconds to do this. Okay. Yeah. So it sounds complicated, but usually when participants do the practice, they get it within like 10 trials. Um, Once it's mostly adjusting to the time. Uh, but it just goes to show how fast we, we do actually make mm-hmm. choices. Super fast. You only see the stimulus, guys, for 0.3 seconds. Wow. Yeah. 
Wow, that's, that's enough neat. to perceive it. Yeah. That's neat. Yep. So how does this play out like in, in kind of real world application? Yeah. So there's a lot of um, situations this can be applied to. Uh, so when we go about our day to day, most of the choices we make are in some condition of uncertainty. Yes, we have experience, but we've sort of developed these um, expectations, right, about how likely something is going to happen or, you know, how fast we have to travel to get to certain destination in a particular amount of time or et cetera. So, like, say we're trying to find a friend in a really crowded, or you're a little kid and you're trying to find your mom in a really crowded shopping center. You have to sort of trade off, am I going to tap on anyone who looks like my mom or am I going to wait until I'm sure that this is my mom before I tap on them, you mm-hmm. know, or, or try to find them? Um, and that's sort of where the trade off is happening. It's like, how how much do you want the outcome and you're willing to go through different mistakes to get there? Or do you want it, you know, is accuracy what you're sort of prioritizing you want to be sure about your choice before you make it and are you looking at like different temperaments of people or different yeah what what are some of the those like variables that you're looking at yeah so um that's why the question of individual differences comes out um uh because you could be very biased by the sensory information in your environment that's really what guides your behavior you don't really care about the outcomes as much or you could be guided by certainty and these like sort of more general domain, general things that may not have anything to do with the perception or the outcome. It could just be how uncertainty averse you are. So that's like one uh, domain that I'm looking at is aversion to uncertainty. Um, another individual difference or domain is like uh, behavioral inhibition excitation. So how sort of impulsive and impulsivity seeking are you, or sort of reward seeking are you um, and how or how inhibited are you? Um, and reward sensitivity is another one that I'm looking at. So, so I imagine the, the outcomes of we're breaking out in, uh, with an ADHD population or an anxiety population, yeah. like you're going to see a much different different data set. Well, and even within ADHD populations and anxiety populations and just taking into account the fact there's so many comorbidities right across these um, disorders that uh, or or um conditions that it's important to look at. I I sort of take a very dimensional approach to psychopathology. I don't really look at it in terms of diagnostic groupings, but I focus more like the the process functional impairments. Yeah. Yeah. So what process are you not motivated? Are you not, do you not find things rewarding? Um, Are you really scared of punishment? Like those sorts of things you know, sort of fear averse, punishment averse. And that's sort of like a a process rather than, um, or or like executive control and things. So if you can then identify your own personal individual difference Mm -hmm. uh, in in that realm, are you then able to like suggest or or say like, what are the types of environments that would be best to make decisions in? Yeah, so we can can figure out um, 
through math and computational models. I know how much you love math. And I do. I, I do love math. I actually do very much love math. It's It hasn't been my strength, i.e. I was an English major. So I, I sort of stayed a little bit um, away from that, but I kind of regret it now. Mm. Like, uh, I learned so much in grad school, both in terms of like computer science and, and math, that I'm like, wow, if only I knew that you could use these things for like right. real stuff, I might have been right. way more motivated. Well, it was like when I was in my undergrad and took stats, like it just didn't make sense to me at all. Like it was so painful. <laughs> and in, in grad school, when I took research methods, which is applied stats, yeah, yeah, yeah. I thought it, fa- it was fascinating. Yeah, and yeah. it was like, why? I need to start with why. Like, don't, right. don't show me with what. Like it doesn't. It gives me no context to put it anywhere. Totally. Give totally. me the why, and I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm got my attention. Yeah. So, so the goal is, so you can, you can figure out how. Um, a decision would optimally be made, right? And then you can try to see, okay, what if I manipulate this parameter that somebody, say somebody has difficulty, they don't weight the perceptual information enough, for example. Um, what can I do to manipulate this parameter and make them weight perceptual information more so that they're like more attending more to their environment or, or um, attending to the correct thing in their environment? Etc. And that's sort of very simplistic. But um, yeah, so you can see are there aspects of treatment that modify this parameter a little bit and allow someone to make a choice that's closer to optimal um, in terms of the situation and the, the outcomes they want to get? Uh, decisions, unfortunately, are very context dependent. Right. So what works in one situation may not always work in every situation. And based on your, the way you're, you're looking at this and your, your research is it more looking at that like day to day decision making or is it is there also application for the bigger decisions, the types of things that uh, if, if you can't overthink, we tend to? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think um, the research has a little ways to go before it, it really can be applied to like a specific decision scenario okay? because um, there's so many variables that we have to consider that research doesn't have even <laughs> it, it's a lot of variables to manipulate at the same time so it's hard to then know what is actually and changing so many working. participants right, to be right. able to get yeah. anything that's, that's significant yeah. yeah and meaningful so so we keep it simple but we hope that um that we can start sort of getting at these day-to-day decisions or how we can potentially how these things relate to like your affect and your mood and how we can manipulate these simple processes through treatments like cognitive behavioral therapy or acceptance commitment therapy um, or, or, you know, neurofeedback and, and things like that that are a little bit um, more experimental at this stage. Uh, can we manipulate how a person behaves in this decision context and how does that then translate to how they behave in their day-to-day life? Does that generalize? Does it not generalize? Right. So there's so many open questions mm-hmm. still. Um, but I would love for this to have sort of applications in like precision medicine, trying to figure out like what works for you mm-hmm. given what you want um, to achieve or what the outcomes that you want to get. Um so, but I think we, we definitely have a ways to go for sure. Have there been things that, uh, um, I, I always think it's interesting when, uh, when researchers 
find unexpected results that are mm-hmm. that are sort of contrary to what their hypotheses were. Right, right. Unfortunately, they they tend to not publish those, so we never really know. Oh yeah, totally. I and mean, that's a whole that's a whole other issue. Yeah, but, yeah. that's why open science is so important. Just like put it out there, put your hypotheses out there, put your data. Out uh, there. Your, the the data that you didn't want is just as important as the data you wanted. Totally, like, totally. Yeah. I definitely agree with that. So, but, but any surprises? Um, not so far. I think my um, biggest surprises are always in myself. Like, wow, Mirage, you really had to make this super complicated, didn't you? <laughs> you intend to overcomplicate these things? No, <laughs> not at all. Yeah, but it's. Uh, I think that those are the the biggest surprises so far. Um, I'm interested to get into the neuroimaging data to see if there are any surprises on that end. You said when, when, um, cause it took you a couple of years to kind of really nail down this, this topic and put, yeah. and put words to these ideas that were in your head. Yeah. Um, you started looking with, at, uh, individuals with autism and attention networks. Yeah. So in my master's program, I was interested in how social, um, social communication symptoms and autism related to, um, difficulties in attention. Uh, processes. So these are like your alerting arousal systems. You know, some individuals with autism are thought to be hyper aroused, some hypo aroused or less aroused. Um, other, and then there's the executive control, you know, error monitoring, that sort of thing. Uh, and then um, orienting. So actually like engaging your attention into in something, disengaging your attention from something and switching it to something else. Uh, so so transitioning. Transitioning, for sure. <sighs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, so I was, I was interested in how, how atypicalities in these processes related to socio-communicative symptoms um, and, and how functional connectivity in these networks related to behavior. And it sort of dawned on me. I was like, okay, well, there's several reasons why someone might not be socially motivated. Like one could be because you just don't value social things. Like you can see a person's emotion, but you're like, meh, don't care about that. Like the spinning wheel is so much more interesting, you know? Um, But you could also avoid social situations because you have difficulty attending or perceiving them, either because something's moving too fast and you can't keep track of it, or um, because there's so much, like you mentioned, like looking at a face, maybe it's like too uh, arousing and, and you, the it's sensory stimulation, yeah. yeah, and you sort of have to disengage. But at that point, the issue is slightly different, right? So now you're looking at um, someone who values social interaction, but because they have difficulty with it and because it's not a reliable like reinforcer, uh, you end up ignoring the social information or, or can't quite make sense of it enough to do what you need to do so in that, that social, social executive function. Right, right. It, I mean, exactly. I mean, social executive functioning and just and, and just perceiving social information like like if a, you know, our emotions change so frequently on our face, we don't really think about that as something that's hard to see, but sometimes it's hard to keep track of things that move quickly, you know, and change often. Um, So, so that, that's where then my dissertation idea came from because I realized a lot of disorders 
you see difficulties with attention and, and perception, but also difficulties in sort of motivation and um, and learning, like reinforcement learning and things. So uh, I sort of combined these ideas. Turns out it was a lot harder than I expected. <laughs> you know, I, I find as a general uh, uh, pattern or theme for people with ADHD, we are good integrators. We we tend to you know, pull information together from seemingly unrelated things, which is great and also can be painful sometimes when you're doing it, especially in an academic setting. Yeah. 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 So many times I sat in front of, you know, a professor and I was like trying to explain my idea and I'm like, "Mm, they're not getting it. Like, I don't, can't find the words for it. And, but there's so many things now that, um, can help with this sort of thing. Like, how do you put your, your science into lay terms? How do you like, um, I did like a, to sort of practice this kind of concept. I did like a three minute competition, three minute talk competition, um, explain your whole research idea in three minutes. That was super difficult. Such little time, three minutes is. But um, it was it was fun. It was good exercise. Uh, Just iterate over and over. And like I I wrote it out sort of as a paragraph and I started to sort of talk about it normally. I like recorded myself doing it to be like, does this sound natural? You know, um, you start thinking like what is essential for the understanding and what is like me rambling off in like the corners of my brain? Although the brain's round, so I don't really know if we have corners, but you know, (laughs) roundish. Anyway, see, like that. So, um, yeah, what what's the essential information? What can I cut and won't lose the what I really the essence of the topic? And so, yeah, iteration. What's the hardest thing for you about managing your ADHD going through your PhD program? The hardest thing. Several things. I think one is the stigma in academia around talking about this sort of stuff. I think, strangely enough, especially in psychology and and, um, neuroscience, not everyone has this stigma, but definitely it exists. And I think um, it's tough to not be able to openly talk about that. Because um, we were talking before we hit record if whether or not you wanted to use your real name because you're won't. like looking for um, internships and, yeah. and work. And, yeah, yeah. Um, so decision making, how, how did you come to that decision to use your real name? Um, I think it came down to values uh, for me and it came down to what is important and where I want to see the field go. Um, ultimately, yes, I could overthink it and I could think, oh my God, this person's going to think this way and this person. But I feel like I'd be mo- most comfortable in a place that is open and understanding and um, willing to listen if I'm self-advocating and, you know, uh, and, and not perceive sort of talking about these things as, oh, it's an excuse because it isn't. is It's never an excuse if you're putting in effort and if you're looking for solutions, right? It becomes an excuse if you stop looking for solutions. Um, so I, yeah, that's the kind of place I want to be in. 
Well, I want to, I want to thank you for doing that. Cause it's, uh, you know, I think that every, every guest that comes on this podcast and 98% of the guests on this podcast use their real name. I think I've had maybe two people who wanted to use an alias name and that's mm-hmm. fine. Um, I just think everyone that does that, it's, it's a radical, uh, act of stigma busting behavior. And thank you for doing that. Yeah. That's, no problem. Um, Cause it, there's risks involved in it. There is, there is, but I think, um, I, yeah, and not everyone can, and I totally respect that. Um, going back to meeting people where they're at, yeah, you know, yeah. uh, but I, I'm proud of having gotten as far as I have. As you should be, because <laughs> me, I have You know, you, you were saying, you know, but it's, you know, I'm in my eighth year of my uh, my program. I'm like, you're getting your PhD. You totally. have ADHD. Like, you're rocking it. Thanks. I Thank mean, they, they don't just hand out PhDs. No, and it's not. And I recognize all the privilege that I've had along the way, you know, to get there because it, it costs money to to do stuff like this, to send in a lot of applications to do all these things. So um, I think as a field, we need to be way more aware of that and way more supportive of the people who don't have those privileges, um, whether it's because of neurodiversity that the privileges are sort of undermined or, or whether it's because of financial, social, cultural things. Yeah, for sure. So um, we're getting near the end. I wanted to take one more quick break. Mm-hmm. Um, when we come back, I'd like to uh, talk to you a little bit about uh, your experience in the, uh, in the coaching groups. Of course. All right. We will be right back. Did you know that you can support this podcast each month and get some cool perks in exchange? by going to ADHDrewired.com slash Patreon. If you are listening to this and it's early enough on Tuesday, February 25th, and it's before 1 p.m. Pacific, 4 p.m. Eastern, you can join me for an hour of group coaching with other patrons who give $25 a month or more. We had months where just one or two people have come. So as far as value goes, it doesn't get much better than that. I want to thank all of our patrons who give any amount and especially those who give at a $25 a month level or more. I hope to get to see you today. MJ, Justin, Rob K, Tina, Joshua E, Miley, Will Curb, Agnes, Nikki, Matthew, Christy M, and Steph D. We do this every fourth Tuesday of the month at 1 p.m. Pacific, 4 p.m. Eastern. Your support fully covers the cost for my production and editing team over at Pro Podcast Solutions and helps offset some of the cost for my executive assistant, Barb. Whether you can give a buck or five, 10, 25, 150 or more, I am grateful for every patron who gives what they can. And if you're not in a place to give, you can support this podcast in a non-monetary way. Share it with someone you know or leave a review on Apple Podcasts. Also, if you're brand new to the podcast, first I want to welcome you. And I also want to invite you to first listen to a handful of episodes before you determine how much value you're getting from them. Anyways, thank you to all our current, past, and future patrons. Oh, and I noticed a larger than normal uh, number of credit cards were declined this month. So if you would be so kind to check to see if you need to update your billing information, I would greatly appreciate that. And I appreciate all of you. Thank you. To become a patron, go to ADHDrewired.com slash Patreon. That's ADHDrewired.com slash Patreon. And thanks. 
So if you're anything like me, you're probably highly skilled at ignoring those reminders you set for yourself. Yes, even I do that sometimes too. Don't you just wish that there would be a short podcast episode like the ones that Will Curb does at Hacking Your ADHD that would focus on how to create more effective reminders? Wait, what's that? That's what Monday's episode was all about? You mean... This week on Hacking Your ADHD, Will Curb covers how to create more effective reminders. Now, how will I remember to listen to that? Check out Hacking Your ADHD this week and every Monday. Join Will as he explores ways that you can work with your ADHD brain to do more of the things that you want to do. Each episode is between 13 to 18 minutes long. And every Friday... Check out ADHD Essentials with Brendan Mahan. It's a lot like ADHD Rewired, without the swears, with a focus on kid-related issues. Both Hacking Your ADHD and ADHD Essentials are both part of the ADHD Rewired Podcast Network, available to everyone, everywhere you consume podcasts. Go subscribe. And don't forget, you can join me and the host of Hacking Your ADHD, Will Curb, and the host of ADHD Essentials, Brendan Mahan, every second Tuesday of the month at 10.30 a.m. Pacific, 1.30 p.m. Eastern for an hour of live Q&A. Register for free at ADHDrewired.com slash events. That's ADHDrewired.com slash events. And we'll see you there. All right, we are back. And uh, before we, we dive into you talking about the coaching group, I just want to like give you kudos for your attention shifting abilities or attention switching abilities. Uh, so during the last break, you've uh, got an email because you've been waiting for responses for uh, um, internship placements. So while like we're on break from this, this conversation, you responded and uh, to to this uh, to one of your the internships that you applied for. Mm-hmm. And just now you got it confirmed. Yep. And then added it to your calendar. Yep. And you're back. Yep. We're back. I'm impressed. Thanks. And we came up and you said something that like we should write this down because it was really like catchy and clever. And what well, you wrote it down. What was it? Um, not ideal, but I can deal. Yeah. I like it. Thanks. I like it. Thank you. Um, yeah, it, the date was not like my top choice date, but, uh, it was a date that I could work around. Not a deal, but I, I could deal. deal. I love it. I love it. Thanks. <laughs> All right. So in the, the maybe one day merch store that will, uh, that will happen, um, that's maybe at some Stay point. Stay tuned. Maybe we'll have that on a shirt. Feature Eric, feature, feature Eric, future Eric will be planning. And what was the other one you said? Uh, uh, research is me search. Research is me search. I love it. Love it. All right. So research is me search. You did some, I guess, some of your own me search mm-hmm. um, joining our, our coaching group uh, not that long ago. Yeah. Um, so the self-help aspect was really group help. Uh is a lot of people talking about their experiences, very relatable experiences that I think not all of us were ready to to talk about ourselves. But when we heard someone else talk about it, just all of a sudden come out and you're like, oh, what are your strategies for dealing with that? How do you deal with this? And how do we implement like the skills that we know we should be using? Like, I think 
a lot of us have the awareness, like I should be planning. Well, that's something we were talking about before we recorded yeah. it is like sometimes it's, it can be almost a little bit more frustrating when you like are in the field and you know what to do, totally. but it's like ADHD is not a skill deficit. It's a performance. Right. You know, it's, it's, yeah. it's doing it's, what it's you know. how and not just the what. Right. Um, totally. So why why was it that you, I mean, besides that you're a PhD student with ADHD, which, man, that's, that's amazing. Um, why did you want to join? Um, I had several uh, random people that I had met through various sources, friends and such that had taken the course and um, had said really great things. I think one of the major things they emphasized was like, you sort of have to be in a place where you're ready to get into this um, and work on addressing the hard stuff um, as it relates. Not, not necessarily, it wasn't like a, you know, it, it's like you're motivated enough to want change uh, and then you can take the step. Um, and it's not a cure-all, but it You'll still have ADHD at the end. Yeah. Yeah. But you now have skills and you have a support system that, um, will sort of help along the way, you know, someone to powwow for ideas. Were there things that were surprising to you about being in the group? Um, just how many people struggle with this sort of thing, um, and how similar a lot of the struggles are. I, I don't, it wasn't surprising, but I think being in it is very different. It moved from that sort of intellectual knowledge right. to a, that emotional connection. Totally, yeah. totally, yeah. And I think that's a big part of, I think this is one reason why researchers should go into the the environments in which they hope to some sometime, someday make an impact um, because it, it gives reality to it and it shows you the real challenge like the real world outside of the lab controlled setting challenges that people face um so yeah so that was it was insightful for my own work but it was also insightful for myself um so you're you're a phd student you're you're working yeah so my work is research right okay yeah. um how was it for you making time for the group because it's uh it's a big time commitment yeah, it was uh, difficult, but I think being upfront about that with supervisors and just saying, you know, I'm going to have to take three days a week, you know, two hours or an hour 15, however long um, to do this and finding space um, was a little challenging sometimes. Yeah. Like I know for a while I was in a room that had automatic lights. <laughs> um, so you can't jump out of your chair yeah, and so start waving your I would hands. Start waving. <laughs> You're not the only one that has yeah. got to do that. Yeah. So uh, I don't know. So the, the way the room was designed was just so so poor. <laughs> <laughs> like the sensor was covered. So um, yeah, but but it wasn't hard if you sort of come to your supervisors with that ahead of time and, and ask if that's okay. Um, not everywhere is as flexible. Did you feel nervous that. doing that? A little bit. Um, a little bit. I think not everyone understands why you need practice with time management. Uh, that was sort of like something I had to explain. Yeah. To one of my supervisors. How, how did you explain that? Um, I said, you know, sometimes these things come easy for some people, um, but for others, it needs a little bit more practice. 
and I'm one of those others. Um, and I think this is going to help me actually achieve the goals that I want to achieve. Um, it's not, again, it's, it's not going to be a cure-all, but it's going to help. And I think also ensuring that, you know, it wouldn't interfere with my work in other ways. So having, uh, okay, I'm going to stay an extra couple hours on these days or, um, you know, I'll make sure to set these sort of check-ins with you to make sure that we're still on track. Uh, also reassures them that you're not just like being selfish and taking, which it's okay to be selfish, but that's not going to impact your larger work. So I appreciated that. Mm. So you were, were you nervous having that conversation though? Yeah, right. for sure. For sure. I, I, you, there's always, I mean, I'm nervous about this whole thing going on air and like, <laughs> what I was telling her, it's like coming out to the world. It's like yeah. a very weird, um, weird phenomenon. Um, but you know, once it's out on the internet, it's there forever. It's there forever. <laughs> what were some of the, your takeaways or the things that, uh, the areas where you feel you really didn't grow around? Um, I think the group really encouraged me to take a look at closer at my values. Like, what are the things that are important to me? Why is it that I feel resistance towards some things um, more than others? Um, and I think, and, and resistance, like in a motivation sense, you know, like, why is it so hard to do something? Right, like, you yeah. know, like there's this part of me that wants to do it. And right. yet it's like, there's this invisible, like, right. like shield that's preventing you from moving forward. Right. And, and I know that's something that, you know, in the clinic, you ask patients all the time. It's like, so what's getting in the way of X, Y, and Z? But asking that question from yourself is just, it's so different. Oh, yeah. Um, because then you're like, I don't know. All your defenses are up, <laughs> you know? <laughs> um, it's like, I don't want to fail. I don't, I don't want to seem like I'm making excuses. I don't, you know, so, but all of those thoughts are part of what creates so much resistance and sometimes just accepting that things are hard or that things won't be perfect or that things, um, but, and that you will fail and that you will be rejected and your papers. Oh God, guys in academia, if like rejection, just got to deal with it. It's got to sit with it. It's going to hurt. And then you just got to let it go. Be like, okay, what's next on my plate? Where else can I send this paper? You know, um, it's an important skill. It's very difficult. Um, and I, this was sort of a discussion that was just recently had, you never sort of develop, it can become easier, but you're never numb to it. Right. You know, right. um, and you just find better ways to deal with it. Yeah. How's your sleep? Isn't that something you're working on, uh, during group? Yeah. Um, questionable at best. Okay. Um, but getting better. I think some of the challenges are, um, I currently live in like a basement level, uh, apartment. So I don't get a whole lot of light in the morning. Mm, it's hard. Yeah. And my windows at work don't exist. Oh no. So, so you're not getting enough natural light. Right. So I think I, I've developed like cave, uh, habits. <laughs> Okay, sleeping patterns um, and and just like staying and working and looking at a screen all day, mm -hmm. you know. So I got blue light filtering glasses, which like computer glasses, which um, have been helping for sure. And um, I think 
I'm going to start using one of those alarm clocks that has like the sunrise, mm-hmm. like the Everyone who I've ever heard that has used them loves them. Yeah, but it's such an investment, man. They're Grad student budget. Come not, on. Yeah, well, they're we like hundreds of something dollars, aren't they? I mean, yeah, somebody save the grad students. This is totally a cry for help. Like, we need more money. We need better health care. Oh, <laughs> so man. many things. Oh, man, you're roughing it over there. Right? <laughs> <laughs> Seriously, union, unionize, <laughs> do whatever. And, and are you, you've stayed engaged uh, in our alumni community. Yeah, I have. I haven't been as engaged as I've wanted to be, um, but I figure I'm not an expensive gym membership, so I can sort of like, (laughs) that's how I rationalize it to myself. It's like I have a cheaper gym membership, but um, I also have this community that I can go to uh, and listen to. I listen to the planning meetings. It it's just that like prodding that you need that norm like you won't get in a normal setting. You know, you have normal work deadlines and things that stuff that prodding exists. But this is like prodding to make sure that stuff happens, <laughs> you know. <laughs> so um, like what, what were some of the things that uh, in, in the alumni sessions that you've been to um, that you found helpful? Um Right now, I think we're working on the the yearly planning, and that's definitely, this is going to be the first time I'm going to plan a year in advance for anything, guys, anything ever. Um, How's that feel? Feels interesting. Uh, Not quite as, like, sweaty. You know, you're not quite, like, left to the deadline. (laughs) Um, But, yeah, it's it's less anxiety-inducing in some ways, and I think more anxiety-inducing in others, because you're like, I can't think far, that far ahead. How do I think that far ahead? Um, but it's good practice. Um, so I'm looking forward to that. We're working through the steps. We are, we're, and we, we're probably in total spending about six weeks really doing, your, like, planting all these seeds for for planning your year, because it's, uh, I, know, I know there's been times where, because I know that, that, when I do my yearly planning, like the ideal is I can spend a full day just fully working on it. But this one, you know, I know like last year that didn't happen and it sort of unfolded over the course of several weeks. Mm-hmm. And so I sort of took that, um, uh, what didn't mean to happen, but just happened that way. Yeah. Um, and decided to sort of bring that approach to the alumni of kind of love that. Yeah. Cause it's like, then your brain can be thinking about a week after a week and now, um, and then when we have that, that session that we're doing, uh, in, in mid December, um, this may or may not be out by then. Um, but, uh, it's like podcast time. It's just so, right. it still hurts right. my brain. Um, like it, it's, it's not cause to come in for two hours, we're doing that special uh, yearly planning session for two hours. And if you haven't thought about it at all, it's, you know, it's like the staring at that blank piece of paper and it's just like, uh, what do I want to do when I grow up? <laughs> right. It's. <laughs> Right. Firefighter. No, um, totally. I actually was noticing this. I was like, this is actually really great modeling because it's the fact that we've broken it up into these different sessions where you're like, oh, pick one domain and just think about what you might want to change or do and achieve in this domain. Um, And now you have a piece of paper that if a random idea does come to you on a day that you're not working on this, you can just jot it down on that paper. and you've already started. And I think that's the part that makes it less anxiety inducing is that it's broken up into smaller parts. Um, the hardest thing in everything I do is always like when you have the big thing, 
it look it's like a monster mm-hmm. and all you want to do it's like it's like so much easier to deal with a bunch of little baby monsters <laughs> you know than like a giant dragon you know, Marcia, I don't think I realize how how good you are at turning a phrase. I like it. It's, Thanks. It's, um, yeah, you know, it's it's and so much of you know when I was just at the the uh, ADHD conference and just the and community is just something that is is. I mean, we're both kind of science oriented people, but it's like magical, you know, it's, 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 you can't, I mean, yes, you could measure it, but you can't really measure it. Right. Cause it's, it's such a, it's this feeling that, that it's hard to describe and hard to really get until you've experienced it. Yeah. It's a sense of belonging. Um, and I, it's important it doesn't matter where it is it's like you're an artist your artist community if you're you know somebody who just gets like a little bit of how you think um i think it's beautiful that we have so many different kinds of people in adhd rewired there's just like some similarities that we all sort of share um but i think yeah it, it is sense of community is really nice so what else what else um would you like to share with uh with listeners either about your own personal journey, about uh, being part of the group, any random jokes? You have? Random jo- I don't um, Jokes sort of just have to happen. It's just hard to like, like, be put on the spot. They just, yeah. <laughs> like no joke planning session. Right, right. Maybe for comedians. I don't know. You guys should interview with Eric if you plan out your jokes because that'd be a cool topic. I would imagine professional comedians do. Plan. Yes, yeah. Yeah. Yes. They definitely do. It's not like the Jerry Seinfeld thing where like he, he tries to have these extremes where he works on writing jokes like every day. Wow. Gosh. Sounds like a lot. <laughs> <laughs> but um no i i guess my only last thing not not even really personal but just encouraging people to um find where they're comfortable um in whatever setting they want to be in um there will always be sort of like you're always going to be pushing against some tide um but that tide you know, leads to like calmer rivers and there, you know, there are other places within that setting that you can be that feels um, better to you and that feels more comfortable to you. Uh, And I think we are a lot of us in this community and in, in the scientific community for me and have resilience as a big part of who we are. Um, Add, that is a strength, right? Like when you're on an interview, when you're talking to people, resilience is a huge, huge uh, factor. And it's it instills a lot of hope, I think. Um, and, and community can help with that. It can add to your resilience when you're like not really feeling your most resilient. <laughs> um, and I think... It, it helps when you do get rejected and when when things don't end up the way you imagine them to end up. Because um, there's a lot of uncertainty in life. There is a lot of uncertainty in life because research is me search. Well, Maraj, I think that is uh, that is all the time that we have for today. Uh, thank you so much for making the, the trip out here and spending some time with me uh, here in Glenview. It's uh, it's always fun to have 
have visitors because I get, you know, so I see so many people on my computer screen uh, every day and every week. And it's just nice to, you know, have them be more than two inches big. Absolutely. Thanks for having me, Eric. Um, it's his office is super cute, guys. If anyone is ever <laughs> wanting to just like, you know, you should come down. It's cute, huh? It is. It's cute. I like that, like ward wardrobe. Is that what you call it? It's a um, it's a, a barn house, farmhouse, <laughs> uh, bookshelf with sliding doors. <laughs> I mean, it's when I found that piece of like. Like, I hate shopping of all kinds, like even <laughs> stuff that I like to like get. And I, when I had to furnish my, my office, I saw this thing. I fell in love with this piece of furniture. <laughs> nice. And this is so, a soft, squishy design. <laughs> and of course, so, you know, it's got like a gazillion parts put together. So I, uh, I, um, like found this company, brilliant name of this business. It's, put my stupid thing together. That's, that's the name of the guy's business. It's amazing. It's awesome. Um, and I should have measured it though, because in order for me to get this thing out of this office, I'm going to need to disassemble the entire thing. Because so can you find the company that's like, take this stupid thing apart? apart? Yeah. <laughs> the, measure your stuff. Don't be do I don't know. It's like no, no. no that's no. like a self. Yeah, that's no, like a totally, self bashing totally. thing. So it's like two inches too tall. And it's, um, and it's, I, I love it. I love the sort of the rustic look and it slides. And Agreed. And there are like trees in the waiting area. <laughs> <laughs> they're like decals, but they're, they're really cute. That's, that's my, that's my colleague. We, we painted this whole space when we, like for this, this area, the rent that we pay here is just like dirt cheap. That's amazing. when we got the space, like each like office in here was just, Disgust! Like oh. we, they were well, we, we painted everything. I mean, it was like it was gross. It's because of all the squirrels in the neighborhood. <laughs> I don't think they, I think this this side of this building was just unused for like really two decades. Oh, I don't know. Just, yeah. Um, so yeah. Cool. So yeah. It's, so it's nice. It's cute. Mirage, it is cute. Mirage, and Mirage and y'all some. should come down. Y'all, this is from spending time <laughs> in, South, in Southwest Virginia, which is great. It's a beautiful area. Hiking, hikers, y'all should go. Sure. Well, I'm, I'm glad y'all listened this whole, this whole time. And uh, we'll, we'll cue that outro music right about now. This is Eric Tivers. Thank you for listening and congratulations for making it to the end. ADHD Rewired is more than just a podcast. We are a community focused on learning, growing, and connection. The website is ADHDrewired.com. You can find summaries and additional resources for each episode. You can apply to our free and secret Facebook community. You can learn more about ADHD Rewired's intensive online video-based coaching and accountability groups and sign up for my email newsletter to get exclusive content you won't get anywhere else. It's all at ADHDrewired.com. While you're there, click the Patreon button. If you're a regular listener and you're still listening to my voice, 
consider making a monthly contribution by becoming a patron through our Patreon page. If you are able to financially support my work, it would mean a lot. This show is free to listeners, but it is not free to produce. And patrons get really cool perks. You can follow me on Twitter at Eric Tibbers. You can like our Facebook page at facebook.com slash ADHD Rewired. If you're a coach, therapist, or related professional, connect with me on LinkedIn at linkedin.com slash Eric Tibbers. You can also subscribe to ADHD Rewired on YouTube. And you can subscribe to ADHD Rewired on YouTube and see select interviews and some other videos I've posted. Podcasts change lives. You can make a difference in someone's life by spreading the word about this podcast. Mention it in your online communities on Facebook, Twitter, Reddit, or wherever you hang out online. And be sure to share it with your friends and your family and your clients, as well as your coaches, therapists, and doctors. And if you're a coach, therapist, doctor, or ADHD support group leader, and you would like a pack of podcast postcards to hand out, you can request those at my website, ADHDrewired.com. And if you're a member of Chad or any other ADHD support group, please be sure to tell them about this podcast. You can even show them how to download it on their phone. You know, you might be the person that turns somebody on to a podcast for the very first time. And if you really love this episode, please consider hitting share on your podcast player. I'm only one person and I count on you to help me spread the message. One of the biggest things that you can do to support this podcast and to help other people discover it is to leave an honest rating and review on Apple Podcasts, on Stitcher, or any other podcast app that accepts ratings and reviews. And don't forget to hit subscribe on this podcast on your podcast app so new episodes are automatically pushed to your favorite podcast app. Looking for more ways to listen and learn? Get a free audiobook and a 30-day free trial at audibletrial.com ADHD Rewired. Not sure where to start? In no particular order. Check out Atomic Habits by James Clear. The Body Keeps Score by Bessel van der Kolk. 10% Happier and Meditation for Fidgety Skeptics. These are both by Dan Harris. Change Your Questions and Change Your Life by Marilee G. Adams. The One Thing by Gary Keller and Jay Papasan. Procrastinate on Purpose by Rory Vaden. The Four Tendencies by Gretchen Rubin. Do you have trouble asking for help? Listen to The Art of Asking by Amanda Palmer. It's one of the best produced audiobooks I've ever heard. If you're looking for something a little bit more, say, magical, I unexpectedly fell in love with the Harry Potter series. And I don't usually listen to those kinds of books. And I loved it. And of course, if you haven't yet boarded the Brene Brown bus yet, check out Brene Brown's books, starting with The Gifts of Imperfection, Daring Greatly, Rising Strong, The Power of Vulnerability, and if you're an entrepreneur or a leader in any capacity, check out her 2018 book, Dare to Lead. And Brene still is my most wanted guest. So if you know Brene, you would be so kind to make that connection for me. I would be really, really grateful. You know who else I would like to have on the show? You. Click the podcast tab at ADHDrewired.com and then click the Be a Guest button at the top of that page and schedule a 15-minute pre-interview. This is Eric Tibbers reminding you to keep learning, keep growing, and keep connecting. Self-care is not selfish, and no matter what gets done or doesn't get done, at the end of the day, you are still enough. And no matter how hard it feels, we can do hard things. Thanks for listening. 
catch you next week.